Too many who know the angles Uncover and untangle All the questions and the webs left out to tangle be in I'm Dapper Dan Gavostin, and I own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals, which definitely count. And I'm Mischievous Marchinocchio, and I also own every issue of Amazing Spider-Man, including the annuals. But Dan, the annuals, even the annuals where really cool things happen and Spider-Man like beats an unstoppable foe, they don't count. Oh, well, I mean, I'll I'll take that small victory from you. There are some cool annuals for sure. Uh, All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for the sixth episode of season five of The Amazing Spider Talk, the show where two fans and collectors uncover the strange, fun and fascinating history of the Spider-Man comic universe. Mark, I was trying to think of annuals where there's like an unstoppable foe. Do we count the fly as an unstoppable foe? I mean, there's the fly. Doesn't he fight like the abomination or something in one annual? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Right? That you know, Atlantis a, attacks yeah, issue. Yeah, yeah. Rob Liefeld does the, uh, a rare Rob Liefeld uh, appearance in Amazing Spider-Man, but I, I, I digress. <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, why don't you tell us how people can follow along with our show? Of course, if you want to swing along with us on our journey through Spidey's past Past, present, and future. Did I say president? I always do. Spidey's past, present, and future. Subscribe to Amazing Spider Talk on your favorite podcast app. Every other week, we put out a mainline episode of our flagship show, and sprinkled in between, we review new comics as well as interview some of the greatest Spider-Man creators of yesterday and today. This is the perfect time to start listening. Yeah, and in this season of the all-new Amazing Spider Talk, we're going back to the mid-80s when comics were changing, embracing new visual styles, aging up with their audience, and ditching formulas that had defined serialized superhero comics for decades. And, you know, Roger Stern, he quickly set his run on Amazing Spider-Man aside by featuring villains from other heroes' rogues galleries, just like we talked about on our last show. But one story in particular has become a favorite amongst comic fans while also creating a new story archetype for Spider-Man stories that we're still experiencing to this very day. Yeah, that's right, Dan. We're talking about issues Amazing Spider-Man number 229 and 230, also known as Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut. This is a powerhouse story on its own, but it left an equally gargantuan impact on the future of Spider-Man stories by establishing a new type of Spider-Man story that I think we are going to call very technically overcoming impossible odds. <laughs> uh, you know. well, only the, the finest Latin for, exactly. our, for our listeners. Yeah, yes. we, we just coined that ourselves, totally. And on this week's show, we'll be talking about those famous juggernaut issues and some of the most memorable iterations of the themes established in that story. Right, we're going to be talking about stories that are kind of inspired by Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut, you know, and that story itself. So we're going to be talking about, like Mark said, Amazing Spider-Man numbers 229 and 230, which is Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut. 
We're also going to talk about Amazing Spider-Man numbers 269 and 270, which is, I guess, titled Burn, Spider, Burn. And there's another title with the Holocaust in it. But this is really just the Fire Lord issues. If you know, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. There's Amazing Spider-Man number 317 we're going to be talking about. That's The Sand and the Fury, an early Venom issue. We're going to be talking about our favorite, Amazing Spider-Man Volume 2, numbers 30 to 35, also known as Coming Home. That's not Homecoming. It's Coming Home, the the original uh, one of these. And then lastly, we're going to be kind of talking about the sequel to Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut. That is Something Can Stop the Juggernaut, and that is Amazing Spider-Man 627 to 629 from that brand new day era. Those are some of the stories that we're going to be talking about today when we're talking about stories of overcoming impossible odds. So, Mark, as we were setting out to plan this season out, this became a topic we wanted to talk about, probably because there's a few stories here that you know, this is probably the best chance to talk about them in this context. What stands out to you? I mean, you love this juggernaut story. I think we've talked about the juggernaut story already in in great detail. What stands out to you about like this kind of story in, in Spider-Man? What sets it aside? Let me let me first, I'm, I'm going to define what sets it apart by actually defining what what it does that other stories have done, because I think that's the best way to kind of differentiate it, believe it or not. Like, you know, we, we, have, we have a history of stories going back to the earliest Dicko and Lee issues where, you know, Spider-Man is fighting a new foe and like, you know, he, he meets him for the first time and, you know, loses the fight or gets thrown off his game or whatever. And then he has to kind of use his brain to think of a way to beat him. And then usually by the end of the issue, he beats him. And, you know, we saw that with the Vulture and Electro and, you know, basically all of the Dicko, <laughs> Dicko rogues the first time around. I think changed the game up a bit with, with Juggernaut was the fact that this was also helped by the fact, as we discussed in our last episode, you know, Roger Stern and John Romita Jr. were pulling a villain that Spider-Man had not faced before, but was kind of established in the Marvel Universe as a powerhouse. It's the idea of it's not even it's not even that Spider-Man has to outsmart the opponent, which he does do in, in Juggernaut towards the end. But it's this idea of like outgritting the opponent. And, you know, I think the 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 foundation for like that spirit of Spider-Man can certainly be traced back prior to this story. Like we saw that, you know, in the famous issue of uh, Amazing Spider-Man number 33, where he lifts the the steel and, 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 and whatnot above him to power out to save his Aunt May. But like, I think in the context of this story and then the stories that we we're going to talk about that followed it, it's more this idea of, it's not just Spider-Man's grit and demeanor and kind of overcoming his own doubt. It's like, he, he has to use that to legitimately overcome a physical being that's coming, you know, that that's in combat with him. And I think like, you know, Spider-Man, although he is quite strong and, and probably stronger than I think a lot of creators, you know, give him credit for by default (laughs) at the same token, all of these villains that we're going to be talking about here are like above his weight class. So it's, it's, it's Spider-Man kind of, you know, rising to the occasion and not and and using both his brains and his brawn to overcome an opponent 
which is something that I don't think a lot of people always allow him to do. You know, it's 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 kind of usually just one. It's usually just your brains. So that's that's kind of what I think sets this story apart. It's 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 more of this like like hand to hand combat that elevates it a little bit to a different kind of a story where where Spider-Man is kind of gritting through it. I mean, do you see it that way or how, how do you see it? Yeah, I know. I, I think you nailed it. I'm really glad you brought up, you know, issue 33, the master planner story, because it is very similar. But there is a you know key distinction, which is, you know, the master planner story there, the issue 33, he's not really doing it against Doc, Doc Ock. Although he does fight a few henchmen, it's more just about like the scenario and a ticking clock. And I do think that there is an element of that to all these stories. It's like Spider-Man has to do this before X, Y, and Z, or, or something is, uh, someone even weaker than Spider-Man is set to be a victim by it. In the case of Juggernaut, it's Madam Web. And so he sees himself as almost like the last stand between, you know, this rampaging force, whatever it is, and whether, you know, a victim that could be him, but oftentimes it's some other external thing. What's interesting about these stories is that we're going to talk about today is you know, there's many other stories where Sp- Spider-Man has fought against really powerful baddies. We're just choosing a few that we, we think are notable, but is I think that they keep iterating on each other. And we've almost reached a level where it's become an art form of taking this formula and, you know, layering additional complications on top of it. You know, Juggernaut being kind of the basis for all of this stuff. But yeah, I think you hit the main point, which is like taking that kind of external like internal dread that spider-man always had it's like oh no my secret can't be found out or um these innocent people can't be be hurt and i have to stop it and externalizing it in the form of a villain who can stand to break through all of those things that spider-man normally stands up for yeah i mean because like the th- the difference between like juggernaut and the the tons of steel in 33 is that you know Juggernaut can punch back and the steel can't. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, it's just finding the resolve. Whereas this, it's like he can find the resolve and it still may not be enough. I think that's also kind of the wrinkle with these stories when you when you look at them all. And like well, to- when you mention when you mention the steel punching back, it makes me think of that Spidey super stories where he's got to fight the wall. That's true. Uh- that's true. <laughs> <laughs> to your point, I mean, like I feel like through today, even like when we're reading a story that's based on this template, you kind of know it, if that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, like, I, I mean, it's kind of like, yeah, it's it's just that sense of like, oh, okay, yeah, we know, like, like, oh, we're doing, we're, 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 we're doing a juggernaut story, you know, it's been, it's been a minute, so now we're doing our juggernaut story, you know, Dan Slott's doing his juggernaut story, or Roger Stern is sequeling his juggernaut story, <laughs> however we want to do it. <laughs> I mean, it's interesting because I think, you know, sometimes we might knock a comic that other people love and, you know, sometimes it comes down to just knowing these tropes, right? Like we can see a juggernaut story coming as soon as it starts, whereas other people might be the, uh, you know, their first time, which is fine because it's a great story. And I think a lot of the stories we're talking about here are some of our favorites of all time, even if they're just iterating on something that came before. So, so why don't we start by, of course, talking about the story itself although you know i kind of feel like this is a bit of a cheat because we both have talked about um, amazing spider-man number 229 and 230 
uh, as an essential episode back in the day, pre, pre-seasonal format. I, I recommend people who, if they want to go back and listen to that, they can. And then we even talked about Juggernaut when we did our other, other people's bad guys uh, rundown a couple of weeks ago as well. This, this story, is, you know, it's, it's you know, pretty much considered the pinnacle of, of the Stern run um, by many people. Juggernaut is being sent out by was it, it's Black Tom Cassidy, right? I'm I, I'm 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 not a, I'm not an X Men guy, so I sometimes confuse the names of the X Men of the other X Men villains <laughs> the, to to take down Madam Web, who's you know Spider Man's I guess newish friend. That's I mean you know like that Madam Web is only what barely twenty issues old at this point. <laughs> this kind of solidified her staying power. I think you know I think she could have very easily been swept under the rug and this 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 story makes her like a real part of the spider-man mythos yeah because i do feel I, I mean correct me if i'm wrong but i don't think she had been used in a story outside of those original denny o'neill ones at before this so it was just kind of like oh oh right her she's back oh wait she's like setting off this very major drama so like you know juggernaut is is setting out to 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 kill her and you know, in the the first issue is basically Spider Man trying to stop him, and Juggernaut is just like he can't be bothered. He doesn't even he's not even like mad at Spider Man. He's just like get out of my way, fly. You know, he swat. I mean, literally swats him like a fly. And then you know he he, he does succeed in like unplugging Madam Web from her chair and like sending her into you know you know critical condition. So the second issue of this story is Spider Man like kind of. I guess is it I wouldn't call it getting his revenge, but it's like trying to bring Juggernaut to justice, I guess, in a sense. And, and, and you know, like, re, re, you know, like avenge his friend. I mean, you, you take it from here. I mean, how do you how do you want to describe like everything that happens at this point? <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of, of like my feelings about it came out in our John Romita Jr. interview, which is I think this is really a showcase of uh, incredible art you know, with the juggernaut and the process via which Spider-Man undertakes this. It doesn't feel like quite to me as desperate as some of the other ones that we're going to talk about. Uh, and maybe because I don't care about Madam Web all that much as a character. But I think the art communicates the just the sheer power of this in a way that the other, uh, you know, books that we're going to talk about you know, maybe don't quite as much. I mean, the juggernaut is a, a unique you know, force uh, all on his own. But yeah, I mean, it, it is truly the unstoppable force meets the, I would say immovable object, but I don't think Spider-Man really is the immovable object. It's more like the unwavering spirit. Yeah, and I think I think I referred to it once on Chase and Amazing as the unstoppable force versus the unstoppable spirit. You know, like I think that's kind of. I may have read that and just quoted you. Yeah, it's all right. I, 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 yeah. I, I I'll take the, I'll take the compliment. <laughs> right, right, right. To me, that's the highlight of it. But like, you know, going through it beat for beat, you know, I'm not sure there's so much to say more than it's just a raw, like it's a really raw issue that like hits you right at it, and you know, it's it's a it's a foe we've rarely seen Spider-Man go up against at this point in his in his career. Yeah, and just and just to throw some more things out there in terms of like you know establishing the trope. I mean, like we have like you know Spider Man early on even kind of bemoans the fact he's like you know the X Men. You know, it's one of those the X Men and the Avengers are all out of town, so it's all up to me. So like you know he's he's establishing there and then that he's not only 
not only is he gonna try and stop but he's like the only one for that can stop the juggernaut or attempt to stop the juggernaut and you know to your point about the desperation and and the stakes i agree because frankly the way the juggernaut is acting in this comic you know if spider-man just decided to swing off and not bother juggernaut would just continue on with his life no no harm no foul (laughs) like juggernaut's not actively trying you know know, it's like spider-man is endangering himself and trying to stop the juggernaut but juggernaut is not sitting there being like i need to lure spider-man out to kill him you know, like the other part of the trope is like, you know, kind of like upping in terms of stakes, like Spider-Man continually like ups his ups his attack against Juggernaut to try and slow him down, like to the point where like he even like rams a, a gas tanker truck into him, which, you know, like I think becomes like another weird side effect of these stories, which is like Spider-Man inadvertently like <laughs> trying to break his no kill code, I guess. <laughs> well, there's that and just like the rampant destruction of New York property. I mean, thank God New York in this era and Spider and all throughout. I mean, maybe it's on the result of other people's bat- battles that so many buildings are condemned. Boy, are they, is Spider-Man lucky that he only destroys buildings with nobody living in it. It's true. People who complain about like Man of Steel and like the Superman Zod fight, they should just read all of these comics uh, that we're going to talk about tonight. <laughs> right. There of- was nobody in, in Metropolis during that. I right. mean, they, they all abandoned the city. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, that's insane. And then I think maybe the last piece, although I don't know quite how pronounced it is in this story, Uh, of the trope is Spider-Man putting it all on the line. Like typically he's like, I'm willing to die for this, you know? And and so it's like, it's a, I'm either going to stop him or he's going to kill me. And, and, and we get, we get that as well. Yeah. Which is, I mean, at the end he, you know, and, and, and it's kind of twofold. Like you, you get that classic Spider-Man thinking outside the box, but then it's also he's thinking outside the box, but still kind of putting it all on the line and, and kind of acting dumb doing it. Like he's it's both brilliant and stupid because he basically this throw you know throws himself on top of Juggernaut and covers his eye holes and like you know Juggernaut is like and the art like you said the art here is just so brilliant. He's just like clawing and scratching and pounding the crap out of Spider-Man. Like you know like his you know Spider-Man's body at this point must feel like jelly from all the hits he's taken and he kind of guides juggernaut into a pit of of cement which eventually stops him it's funny that we never get a like follow-up to this where peter's like truly bruised and injured uh, you know like we would for other villains you know but this one he kind of bounces right back from yeah yeah it's true i mean like he should like this should be like a you know, like Rocky at the end of uh, Rocky, you know, Rocky four into five kind of a thing. Like, I mean, like this guy should be completely <laughs> like brain damaged. And, and like I said, his body's probably like, you know, gelatinous goo at this point. But he succeeds, but doesn't actually win. Although we would learn uh, as, as what was it like in, in the sequel to the story that happened years later that Juggernaut, I guess, was in the cement for a month or something like that. <laughs> so... so so he did a pretty good job slowing him down. Like, I don't, I, I always kind of feel like it felt like more, it felt like less than a month when this originally happened, like that juggernaut had gotten out, but whatever. Who's and to say on the Marvel timeline? It's yeah. true. It's true. Time is a flat circle there. But like, yeah, he, he succeeds and it's, it's this very triumphant moment, but it's like, it's the triumph is in the fact that like, he just kind of said, screw it. This is the only way I can win. And if I can't win this way, I'm probably going to die. But he wins. So there you go. I mean, it's so it, it's it's 
you know, he doesn't really outpower him, but he, he outlasts him, I guess is the best way to put it. All right. So that's nothing can stop the juggernaut. I think Mark, you and I have done like independent reviews of just this book. We've talked about it on dozens of shows. So if you want to hear more of our thoughts on it, it's certainly available. And then you've written a ton of pieces on this, both for my site and yours. So, you know, nothing can stop the juggernaut. Now, I think the most immediate follow-up to it is what we're going to talk about next, which I think is very clearly in the mold of this story. And that is, if you want to call it Burn, Spider, Burn, or Spider-Man versus Fire Lord from the Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends run. But I also wanted to note Bob McLeod, who did the finishes on this story. So uh, Ron Friends did the pencils and, you know, Bob McLeod, who the commuter cometh fame he was also very much involved in, in this story as well. Mark, this one is a bit controversial. Tell us a little bit about the story and why people find this one so controversial. Yeah, so, I mean, for those who are unfamiliar, Fire Lord is, at this point, the Herald of Galactus. So, you know, he took, he, he I think he's the successor to the Silver Surfer after the Surfer basically told Galactus to go screw it and pound sand during this Fantastic Four days. Fire Lord has the power cosmic. He is just powered up to kingdom come. I mean, you know, like this is a guy that could probably take down Thanos on a good day. You know, like this is this is a very strong, strong villain. And basically, you know, to to not get into the, the, the details of the trope, I mean, Spider-Man legitimately outmuscles him at the end of this story, which is where I think the, 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 the controversy comes in. Like, you know, because there are people, most famously uh, Dan Slott. And I don't, did, did he say this on Twitter or in comic? I mean, like, he's talked about the story a bunch. So, I mean, you know, like it's, but Dan Slott has basically said that he is not a fan of them because he thinks that it's, it's silly like Spider-Man should never be able to just like, punch out Fire Lord or Herald of Galactus. And, you know, does he does he have a point, Dan? <laughs> yeah, I think he probably has a point, although I'm I'm never the kind of person in, in comic stories where I'm like, you know, who can win the Hulk or the thing? I mean, although that recent fight Dan Slott wrote between the two of them was really enjoyable. I don't stay up nights thinking about power rankings. There's that annual with the power rankings in the back of the book, which is quite clearly nonsense. But like if they can print something that nonsensical about the power rankings of Spider-Man's villains and heroes, then like I I think a story like this can can totally happen. And I think the story justifies that like, hey, this is an unusual event. But oh yeah, also to Dan Slott, like he also wrote that into his Silver Surfer epic where Silver Surfer kind of like made fun of this story. So it is, it is within canon Dan Slott's thoughts uh, on, on this story. Interestingly enough too, editor Jim Owsley considered running this story in an annual or a graphic novel. Didn't really want to run it in the regular pages of amazing Spider-Man, but ultimately relented and put it in. And that's why the two issues prior to this one are kind of like filler issues. He was kind of punting to see if he could do something with it. I don't know if it's because he disliked this story or or what it was, but and the story I will say is is silly as much as I enjoy it. The, like the instigating event that kicks all this off is like 
one of the more absurd reasons to start a fight. Mark, do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about it? Well, yeah. So he, Fire Lord basically goes berserk because a bunch of construction workers mistake him for a mutant and attack him. <laughs> Fire Lord also demands uh, pizza. <laughs> yeah, he like comes to Earth just because he wants pizza, which has which he states no you know culinary craft in all of the universe has come close to this. Pizza officially Fire Lord's favorite. You could just tell and, like DeFalco uh, and yeah. friends are just yucking it up behind the scenes on this whole <laughs> issue. Like, what if we get Fire Lord here and he wants pizza? <laughs> it's very like it's very DeFalco friends. It's very their sense of humor and kind of the like old school. I mean, what this reminds me the most of is like Spider-Man versus human torched fights from like the Steve Dicko, Stan Lee era, or you know, or even I guess like Jack Kirby also drew one of those fights. It's kind of just like a silly reason to have Spider-Man fight a big flaming guy over like a petulant brawl in New York, which is what it becomes because Spider-Man steps in to protect the construction workers. And then it just becomes these two guys tearing up the city just because, yeah. you know? Yeah, because and, unlike... And no Jug- other reason than that. Yeah. I was going to say, because unlike Juggernaut, Fire Lord is actually like legitimately pissed at Spider-Man. He's like, okay, you're going to interrupt me, then I'm going to kill you. So he's just like... Chasing him up, down, and around New York City. They're down in the subway system. They're they're going through buildings and office buildings and stuff like that. Like you know, in Fire Lord, you know, as he is named, he's just shooting fire at, at Spider Man and missing him, but hitting buildings and trains. And like you don't see innocent people die in this, but like my goodness, the amount of damage being done by these two characters. How you have to figure somebody bit the dust here, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can't, I'm pressed to think if there is a Spider-Man story with more destruction in it. Like, he even potentially, like you said last time, breaked his no-kill rule when he tries to have construction workers blow up a building with Fire Lord on the inside, and then he, like, is like, whew, like he didn't actually die, nor did it stop him. But there's, like, sequences where Fire Lord, like, flies through three buildings at once or sets a train on fire, I mean, it is it is a lot of damage that uh, Spider-Man is trying to prevent from happening. One, one, one of my favorite moments is where Spider-Man figures, well, look, he doesn't know who Peter Parker is. So if I just change back into Peter Parker, he'll like not be able to find me and he'll like kind of peace out. And I think there's a good point there. But like ultimately, Spider-Man's responsibility gets the better of him. But responsibility to what? I, I guess maybe he would go back and kill those construction workers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, because I because I also feel like Fire Lord is is trying to bait Spider Man here. I mean, and then this 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 would get this trope and the this trope within the trope would get played upon later on by by Moreland. I feel when when we get to that story, but like he's out and doing things in public because he knows Spider Man is going to respond to it. You know, like I don't think he's necessarily trying to kill innocent people, but he's not trying to be coy either. You know, he's just like, look, I'm here and I'm chasing you down, but I also know being out in public is going to keep you out in public. And yeah, I mean, to your point with the no kill code, I mean, it's like, again, like the template here is, you know, Spider-Man is just throwing everything at this guy. uh, And he gets to the point where he's just like, blow up the, I mean, in his defense, he's gonna, you know, he's taking the risk that he'll be blown up as well in the building. (laughs) Because even like the construction workers are like, 
hey, I'm not going to let Spider-Man down and I want to kill that freak too or something. <laughs> very, very, very like, you know, New Yorker attitude about Spider-Man. It's like, I can't let him down, but also he sucks too. So if he dies, so be it. <laughs> One of the other parts of the trope again is that like Spider-Man tries to seek out help and here it's the Avengers who do eventually show up, but they don't actually help him defeat Fire Lord in any meaningful way. But we'll see this kind of iterated on as time goes on. So I guess, you know, where this one is different, substantially different from Juggernaut is it's how it's concluded, which is like, you know, I always refer to this as like, it's it's basically like Spider-Man cutting the Gordian knot. It's like, you know, like he's tried to outsmart him and outmaneuver him and blow him up in a building. And it's like none of that works. And he, and he basically says, ah, what the hell? Let me just see what happens if I punch him hard. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, this it, the sequence is drawn beautifully by friends. I mean, like this is like one thing where like, you know, Spider-Man is kind of like a blur and he's like, you know, punching and kicking him in like five different places. It's like one of my favorite panels from from the Friends to Falco years. And it's not even a full splash page. It's just like one, you know, kind of a horizontal panel. But it, it's just really dynamic in terms of the action. I think like others have like riffed on it over the years. But yeah, he's just like. He just decides to start pounding on him and, you know, like he's like bracing himself as he's punching away, like he's going to hit back any moment. It's going to suck. It's probably going to kill me. And then all of a sudden it's like you got the the Avengers do show up and they're just like, yo, bro, he's out. Stop hitting him. <laughs> like, stop, stop. He's already dead. <laughs> <laughs> the, the way that that is framed is it kind of like moves in on Spider-Man's face mask as he's pummeling him and you lose fire Lord in it, it shows like how in his own head Spider-Man is. He's just throwing everything at it. It reminds me of, you know, amazing Spider-Man 33 where Spider-Man is fighting those goons and, you know, he's not even thinking about it. He's just throwing his fists around. I mean, I I don't have any evidence to suggest this, but uh, this ending also reminds me of the ending of maximum carnage where everybody is kind of watching carnage get like pummeled by Venom and Spider-Man is considering whether to step in. I feel like the imagery there that Sal Buscema utilizes is very similar to the ending of, of this story. I, I, I don't have any evidence to suggest that that's true, but it's what it reminds me of when I, when I look at something like this. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a good callback in terms of the homage here. And then, you know, again, so what we were saying earlier, you know, I can see the criticism with this because it's like, you know, how does Spider-Man with his fist stop somebody that an exploding building couldn't stop just a few pages earlier? And I also feel like, you know, one of the things that Dan Slott kind of complained about is like, you know, once you have Spider-Man just physically assault Fire Lord, it becomes like, you know, for those that hold true to continuity, which most Marvel fans do, they could say, well, how can how can Spider-Man lose to Doc Ock when he beat up Fire Lord, or how could Spider-Man lose to Venom if he beat up Fire Lord? You know, I mean, it's true. I mean, it, it, like if people want to, like, like you know, I to your other earlier point, Dan, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not one of those fans that sits there and obsesses over like you know the one loss record and who beat who, but it's like there are some fans who do, <laughs> so it's something that they can kind of use to like poke a hole in any drama that that could follow in Spider-Man's life because it's like they could always just turn around and say, well, I don't believe that this would happen because he beat up Fire Lord. And it's like, well, yeah, but it's comics. So you just have is to this, believe is it. Is this more or less silly than him beating up all of the X-Men in Secret Wars? <laughs> I, 
the, no, the X-Men is sillier because it's like Spider-Man, uh, Marvel is basically like degrading its own product to doing that. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like, yeah, it's, it's both absurd. And then it's also like making the X-Men look weak and pathetic in, 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 in contrast. Whereas this, it's like, you know, Fire Lord. Okay. I mean, you know, he's, he he fought some some heroes, but it's not like you know Fire Lord is not like Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet and Spider Man just punched him out. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like I don't think we've ever had like a a, a th- you know an extinction level event threat from Fire Lord yet. <laughs> Fire Lord holds his own here too. Like I don't want to make this sound like he just beat up on Fire Lord. I mean he gives like, that's part of this trope is that he literally gives it his all. And do I believe that Spider-Man will be willing to put like every ounce of strength he ever had into a fight and come out the victor? Yeah, I do. I think like Fire Lord's a tough guy, but nothing is as tough as, as Peter Parker's spirit. So like, fine. You know, like, do I want to read a book where Spider-Man beats the Hulk? Hell yeah, I would read that. I bet Spider-Man could do it. You know, I, I think his willpower is is unmatched in, in the Marvel Universe. So why don't we why don't we jump to our next one, which is, you know, we're starting to get a little bit more into the modern era. This is our first true Spider-Man villain that we're going to feature here, not someone else's villain. And that's going to be Venom from The Sand and the Fury, which is the third part of like, I guess I would consider it the second Venom arc from the David Michelinie, Tom McFarlane run. I mean, this was also an essential episode <laughs> for those uh, playing at home. Obviously, when Venom first appeared, I mean, you know, Venom was always a very high level threat for Spider-Man because, you know, he basically had all of his powers, but was physically stronger and also wouldn't set off his spider sense. And Venom also only had like two pronounced uh, weaknesses, which was fire and sonics. Well, that was more the symbiote. But yeah, I mean, Venom as the symbiote. What's interesting about this story versus the first two is a lot of the physical a lot of the threat coming from venom in this story is more psychological than physical i mean like we venom can kick the crap out of spider-man that's not in question but it's like you know he's basically luring spider-man out into a fight by like you know he shows up at aunt may's house as eddie brock and like oh can peter come out and play i mean like he's just totally effing with spider-man at every turn just to goad him into like you know fight me because you know i'll kill you it's really like terrifying just the length that 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 Brock seems willing to go to to get that one on one fight with Spider-Man. So it's kind of like how will Spider-Man respond to someone who is that physically imposing and is basically just trying to set him up to have a fight? You know, like it's like, you know, he, he wants to fight on his terms so to make it, to make the odds even more against Spider-Man, which is like really interesting. Yeah, I mean, when I was rereading this, and and this is one of the first Spider-Man stories I ever read. I I, I don't know about you, but this is my first introduction to Venom, and it certainly paints a very... It's the kind of Venom story I wish we still got, because I think it demonstrates everything that made this character special. Because it might not be a perfect fit for this story structure that we're talking about, although I think all of the early Venom stories from 300 to 375 are kind of structured like this. Like 375 being my first Amazing Spider-Man comic I ever read. I mean, in that one, Venom probably gets more licks in on Spider-Man as he parades his body through the walls of a of Coney Island or whatever. What I think makes this one so interesting is the overwhelming force isn't 
overwhelmingly physical, although yes, Venom is a very imposing physical threat. It's more psychological than anything else, right? He's showing up at Peter's house and threatening harm to Aunt May and other people in his life. And he's omnipresent, right? He can become a cop. He knows about Spider-Man's dealings with his allies. You know, Venom is everywhere all the time and the like, and Spider-Man has to deal with it, right? There's no way out of it. And that to me is what makes it an overcoming and, you know, an impossible force in, in, a, in a different way. I, I don't know, Mark, do you still feel like this takes from the juggernaut format? I do. I mean, it's 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 not as chaotic and rampaging, but it's like it's you have a villain who is specifically targeting Spider-Man. And like it's like at each turn, he's putting another layer of odds in front of him. You know, it's it, it's not just it's not just, you know, first it's you can't you know, don't contact your friends and like, you know, and because I'll know. And he does. That's the thing. Like Spider-Man tries to, you know, do something on the sly and he gets he gets found out. And it's like, no, you, you do that again. And I'm going to, you know, here I'm showing up at May's house. I'm going to kill her. And it's just like, oh, OK. Like like so he he is, you know, similar to what we saw with like Fire Lord and Juggernaut. I mean, you know, instead of surviving you know a blown up building or tanker truck or anything like that it's just venom it's just like basically like you know all of your ways that you've tried that you stopped me before you can't i'm i'm cutting you off at the pass so you have to come up with an entirely new way to stop me and and then you know like i was saying earlier kind of adding to the to the to the odds making is venom is basically setting the stage of you're going to fight me one on one on my terms it's like, you know, like home field advantage in sports. It's like, you, you're, you know, you, you're not, I'm going to set this up so there's no way you can win. What really pushes it into the, into the, the template here is, is Spider-Man, how Spider-Man resolves it, which is, do you want to, do you want to explain what, what, what he does here? Which I, I, I think this is one of his brilliant, most brilliant, like res- resolutions to a villain fight ever. <laughs> well, well, even before that, I want to kind of revisit some of the tropes that it, like also leans into or creates on its own. You know, here we've got, we've got a goodbye speech. So Spider-Man thinks he's heading off to die, you know? So he basically tells MJ, you know, like this might be it for me, but I can't let this guy harm Aunt May or my loved ones until you get that. And we'll see that return definitely in some of the stories we're going to talk about later in the show. But you're right. It is a great way he beats them. You know, he tries fire. He tries Sonic's nothing's working. So he kind of realizes he truly leans into the symbiotic bond that he had established with the suit and strips himself completely down to his, <laughs> his like his underoos <laughs> boxers and on the beach. And you know, this is like Peter at his hunkiest because Todd McFarlane is drawing him. <laughs> and, uh, and like truly offers himself up as beefcake to, to this symbiote and basically like tempts the symbiote back to him because he knows the symbiote is after power and Spider-Man is more powerful than Eddie Brock. And so the symbiote goes to leave Brock and yet it can't really dis- de- uh, detach from him or attach itself to Spider-Man. And it causes both of them to pass out. There's this great image of Peter kind of waking up from the fight with the like, symbiote half on his face. And you see the fangs kind of like slowly melting off of Peter. I think Mark Bagley does that kind of stuff better than Todd McFarlane does. But it's still really cool looking. And uh, one of the smarter ways that Peter defeats uh, the symbiote. And I don't think he really could quite pull that off again. 
that that trick kind of uh, wore itself out there. I just love the the self-sacrifice here. I mean, like we saw that basically in these two other stories we talked about, too. Again, making this, I think, kind of fit into the, the, the trope that we're talking about here. I mean, you know, yeah, it's it's not quite like, you know, throwing haymakers at Fire Lord and hoping that he can get enough in before Fire Lord can respond or, or you know, clinging to the back of Juggernaut. But like, yeah, he's he's taking a chance here. And it's like, you know, like if this goes wrong, I'm going to die. But he does it anyway. And, and, and he overcomes. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, probably of all the ones we're about to talk about, this is the the loosest of the connections. But I, I do. I, frankly, frankly, Dan, I think I think it's good. We got a Venom story in here because I feel like Venom <laughs> as, as, as a personal Spider-Man villain, I think, is is one of the best in terms of uh, overcoming overcoming the odds. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is one of my favorites. Not that we need any more symbiote-related what-if stories with Spider-Man, but like there is there is an, an interesting story to be told if the symbiote truly left Brock in this moment and rejoined Peter there. I feel like that is a more permanent bond, but we'll leave that to someone better than us to tell. I'm sure they're going to try to do that at some point, given that they like to do symbiote Spider-Man stories. So, um, hey, you know, before we could talk about our last two stories... Let's tell everybody about our Slack. Yeah, hundreds of listeners like you hang out in our community of Spider-Man fans on Slack. The Amazing Spider Slack community is absolutely free to join. And you can jump into active conversations with awesome people about collecting, conventions, movies, new comics, old comics, and more. Yeah, I hang out there too much. I think I'm doing a little bit better. Maybe it's just that the pandemic is kind of ebbing here. Either way, I've been hanging out in there this week discussing Sinister War and all the revelations that have been coming out of the conclusion of the Spencer run or all the revelations or all the lack of revelations, whatever you want to feel about it. <laughs> um, so if you want to join this awesome Spider-Man community, just follow the link in the description and be sure to say hi. And once you are there... Be sure to let us know what you thought of this episode. We got a channel just for talking about the podcast. We'd love to know what you guys thought about all the stuff we talked about today. All right, Mark, what do we got next? Yeah, Dan, I mean, you know, there's, there's something to be said that we're, we're, we're talking about so many stories that we can probably call among our favorites here. I mean, you know, which also kind of speaks again to this to this trope you know it when you see it and when you see it it's usually pretty good and this yeah. is to me one of the best this is coming home which is j michael straczynski and john ramita jr this was of course jms's uh, and jrjr's first first main arc on amazing spider-man it's volume two number 30 to 35 and this introduced the world to morlin the vampiric kind of uh, not a celestial being but you know uh, how, how would you describe what what Moreland is. <laughs> well, he's an inheritor, which yes. I hate saying. <laughs> I, I just don't want to acknowledge that that exists. The perfect Moreland to me exists in this story. He's definitely just like a, an extremely overpowered character. And that's almost like his only defining trait is that he just is like something of extreme power that is coming and sucking up other people's fat. I mean, he's a vampire. He's a vampire for for totemic powers. Where he came from prior to this prior to the Spider-Verse stories, I don't know nor did I care to know. 
No, and that's kind of part of the allure too. It's just he's he's, he's as he's mysterious. He arrives, and all and all we know is that this is like a catastrophic level threat to Spider-Man because this is this is unlike Juggernaut or even Fire Lord, and, and you know I guess this is more akin to to Venom. Like Moreland is here. Well, that's the thing. It's not even it's not even malicious. He's like he even says like I, I don't I don't hate you. I just need to eat. So and you're what I feed on. So you're going to die. But, you know, nothing personal, bud. <laughs> you know, and he like automatically seems to know like Spider-Man's character and and his insecurities and his weaknesses and his his responsibility and, and how he can't break that. So kind of similar to Fire Lord, but I think with even more cunning, Moreland basically goes out into the public and and go to goad Spider-Man into coming out to to fight him because he knows you know like even like tries to, if memory serves even like attacks a kid or something like that right I mean like he's just he's just like taking innocence and he's like yeah I'm I'm gonna kill this person now unless you come out and and fight me because otherwise you know you're just gonna hide from me because Spider-Man even debates like can I just hide from this guy can I outrun him and Moreland's like no you can't. And, and Moreland is just like every time the two of them meet up, he's just like, you know, like just level Spider-Man like he doesn't have a chance. I mean, it's it's I, I mean, we kind of see this with Kindred right now, but I don't know. I, I think with Moreland, it felt more organic and real. Like, it was yeah, just- I mean, there are images of like Peter, like clinging on to things. His costume is tattered off of him. I mean, a lot of that goes to J.R.J.R.'s artwork but like for me the defining image of this is like peter clinging to like barely standing up to on a payphone calling like aunt may to leave a message about like how much he loves her because he knows he's not gonna win a more desperate moment in spider-man i don't know if one exists yeah i mean you have that i mean there's the added element like at this point spider-man and, and mj are separated so it's like he's like really not only is he on his own against this villain, but he's just, yeah, he, he just feels so alone and and defeated and without anybody who can help him. I mean, he makes this alliance with this equally mysterious person, Ezekiel, who, you know, is going to help him against the inher- the inheritor. Sorry, I, I did it. I broke I broke your rule then. <laughs> no, he is an inheritor, but I, uh, yeah, I just yeah. don't want to think about it. I know, I know. But, but like, even, like, even Ezekiel bites the dust, we think, uh, <laughs> in the story. And it's just like, Spider-Man's got nobody here, you know? Like, he, he's got nobody. And, and, you know, the only thing he can think of, the only thing he can do is use his brain. And, and boy, does he. I mean, I think this is probably even more clever than the Venom resolution, right? But it also is one, it's one of those things where he's willing to sacrifice himself, right? So he injects himself with like an extreme amount of radiation and the story is really kind of centering thematically on this idea of like how did spider-man actually get his powers is he a a mystical totemic creation or is he one created of science radioactivity versus like magic you know i think a lot of people like to bash this run as kind of the the whole idea of spider-man getting his powers from magic is kind of silly or against the character. But I think this story really puts its foot down on on what side of that equation it really ends up with, which is he defeats Moreland because he's not pure. 
He's not a purely magical thing. He is a radi- a child of radioactivity. So when Morlin goes to eat him, and this is like a- as close to sacrificing himself as he probably ever gets in any of these stories, is he offers himself up as a meal to Morlin. And when Morlin takes a bite, he is suffused with radioactivity, which his body can't handle. It's like eating, I guess, like food poisoning, quite literally. And then, of course, you've got the kind of like, it's a bit of a cheat, although it's set up well, that Spider-Man can't kill anyone. So, of course, Moreland's like assistant shows up that's like been spurned by Moreland or whatever. And his assistant shows up and shoots him dead. And so Spider-Man's hands are are clean, but uh, I, I, I buy it. But yes, he, he is able to defeat him using his smarts and just very the pure, very essence of who he is, right? He is a child of radioactivity. He's not pure, and he defeats Moreland. Hey, hey, you know, we, we talked earlier about how fans who hold uh, onto a certain ideal of Spider-Man probably lean on that Fire Lord story a little too hard. I, I think on the flip side of that, those who maybe don't see Spider-Man or Peter as a choir boy saint hold on to that, like, like myself personally, I hold on to that I'm not pure panel a lot because I feel like that's kind of the thesis of, thesis of Spider-Man right there. It's That's the thing. He's not he's not pure. He's not perfect. He's not magic. He's, you know, he's a human with powers and, and you know, it kind of, it, it, it speaks to a lot of different levels of Spider-Man here. It's not just, it's not just I'm not pure because I'm radiated. It's, it's more than that to me. I, that's how I've always read that sequence. I don't know. Am, am I, am I overreading it, Dan? <laughs> no. And, and what a panel too of him just like slugging Moreland with all those like lines or, or, you know, radiating from it. It's one of my favorite drawings in a Spider-Man comic. I mean, I've gone on the record as saying, I think that this is my favorite Spider-Man story of all time, just like yours, you say, like the juggernaut for me, I think like as, as much as I love like ASM 33 and ASM 50 and all those classics for me, like when I think of the purest form of what I want Spider-Man to be, I think coming home is it. It just, it's got everything, the balancing of like supporting cast and, and Peter stuff and uh, an interesting new idea and wrinkle. If, if I, if I recommend a Spider-Man comic to anybody, I've bought this book for people. I couldn't even tell you how many times it's not an essential. It's not listed on our essentials list, but that's only because it seems so obviously an essential and because we talked about it before. So if you want to hear our issue by issue thoughts on this, you can go listen to our review of the spider verse issues way back, you know, years ago in our podcasting, we went issue by issue through this story because it's one of our favorites. Yeah, Mark, anything you want to add generally about Coming Home? It's not my all-time favorite, but it's probably within my top five of of all-time favorites. Uh, And I agree with you. To me, like, this is, like, one of those, like, I want to read something about Spider-Man, but, you know, what would help me understand the character best? I would, even with all of the, the totemic stuff and, like you say, the magic and, like, a lot of these plot lines that, frankly, either got kind of dismissed by by succeeding creators or, or mocked or scorned. I, I feel there's just something inherent about this story that makes it like very easy to just pick it up as a non-fan and be like, oh, okay, that's why this character is so cool. You know, like I get it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, um, also to mention it's an, an Eisner award winning story 
The other Spider-Man story would be like Spectacular 310. Like those are the two that have won Eisner's. I would say this one measures up. I would put this up against just about any other book Marvel publishes. So awesome. Well, that that's coming home and an unforgettable tale. Lastly is one I think we have to talk about here because we're probably not going to talk about it when we get to the season devoted to this because it's not really a standout of that era, but it is certainly interesting, which is something can stop the juggernaut, which was the return of Roger Stern to Amazing Spider-Man after, what, 20 years he came back? Yeah, at least, yeah. Um, I I, I mean, because this was, was this 2008? 2009 what year so, was it? something like that yeah 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 so i mean this is this is stern years later well he had his hobgoblin lives mini but but yeah this is an interesting one like you said we have to talk about it because it's the sequel but also frankly i mean when you look at the roles here like the the role of madam webb in this story is basically being cast as the juggernaut and because like the juggernaut like is like kind of shows up and it's just been like obliterated by something. And, you know, Spider-Man kind of says the title of the movie and it's like, something can stop the juggernaut. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the hunt for Red October. <laughs> 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 um, anyway, a- as it turns out, you know, the juggernaut is getting stalked by someone who has the power of Captain Universe. You know, so Spider-Man kind of takes himself you know, appoints himself like the, the the protector of Juggernaut because it's like, wow, well, anyone who can do that to him has got too much power and needs to be, you know, and can't and can't continue doing that. Plus, like, he, I don't want to see, you know, Juggernaut is, you know, not a great person, but like he doesn't deserve to get like killed like that. So it's like, you know, he's got so he he basically tries to step in between these two super powered beings. And, you know, how well does that go for him, Dan? I'm by the end, pretty well, but True. <laughs> uh, initially not. Initially, it becomes like a Fire Lord fight where it's tearing down buildings and and causing you know a ton of damage. And I think it's really fun. The first issue of this, I think, is a blast. My, the only reason I think maybe it doesn't totally fit in this storytelling trope is it starts out that way. And I think it'd be a better story if it kind of just repeated past history it because it eventually kind of comes down to kind of like cosmic mumbo jumbo and the rules of captain universe and things like that. And it doesn't really rely on Spider-Man's pure bravado. Not that I need to see Spider-Man taking down captain universe because even I might bulk at that. I, I do think like if it had followed that, like the trope established by Roger Stern, I think the story would have been better because it is cool to see the roles flipped where Juggernaut is essentially the Madam Web character. But I just, the conclusion to this is just kind of, I wouldn't say silly. It's like within standard realms of comic books, but it's not quite as meaningful as seeing Spider-Man give it his all in the way that these others do. So weirdly enough, it, it doesn't, I think, showcase this storytelling structure entirely. It does showcase other Spider-Man tropes. I mean, like, you know, actually what I kind of enjoyed and actually in rereading this story this past weekend in prep for this i i I had forgotten about this this twist with the story but like you know the person who has the power of of captain universe he was someone who was in one of the office buildings that juggernaut and spider-man fought through during the original 
comic. And because of the, the building destruction, he ends up getting laid off from his job. So, you know, and, and he basically inherits the power of uh, the Enigma Force, <laughs> speaking of mumbo jumbo, and a botched attempt to kill himself because his life has lost, you know, all meaning and, and, and purpose. You know, so it kind of like adds that, you know, for Spider-Man, at least that level of responsibility and guilt, because it's like, you know, he was a party to this, uh, which is, you know, a, a classic Spider-Man trope. But is that overcoming impossible odds? Eh, not as much. I, I, I think, you know, like this, this, this story tap dances with it and like even tap dances with like Spider-Man when he was Captain Universe and like some of the things that were done there that might fit into this genre a bit. But like it just to me, like. It never goes full, like full out into this into this trope, which probably is why, even though it was exciting that Stern was back on the book and they were doing a sequel to this, it didn't to me. It never it really didn't live up to the original. I kind of just felt like, oh, that's that was fun. But, you know, that's OK. I, I, I don't know if my life would have gained or lost meaning if it never existed, if that makes sense. <laughs> You're not about to jump off a building and gain the Enigma Force? Is that no, no, not, not over this thing. But I mean, but it's fun. I don't want to make it sound like it's a bad story. It's just kind of like, oh, OK. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was I mean, one this, of this. Fe- it feels like it's straight out of the Stern run. Like if they showed up in the Stern run, I'd be like, great, another comic in, in the Stern run. Did an issue of Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man around this time. That was kind of like a one off. I think it was even a point one. That was also really good, you know, so Stern gets to show up every now and again. I don't know why we don't see him more frequently, to be honest. And I, I thought this was plenty fun and, and a fun one to return to. But like you said, when it measures up against something as amazing as nothing can stop the juggernaut, like, you know, it's not going to. <laughs> it's just there's very few stories that are that good. Yeah. Now, of course, Dan, I mean, there were there were certainly some other stories that we considered for this episode, but, you know, for both purposes of time and also like, did, did, did we think it truly fit the mold? We, we didn't go all the way. I mean, like a couple that come to mind for me was the conclusion to what I just alluded to earlier, the cosmic Spider-Man saga. That was when Spider-Man is as Captain Universe has to take on the Tri-Sentinel and basically, you know, it's the Tri-Sentinel is ready to blow up a nuclear power plant. And, you know, Spider-Man has to basically channel all of the power of Captain Universe to stop him, even if it uh, could lead to his own death. And he does it anyway. And then, you know, ends up losing the, the power cosmic. And it's kind of like, uh, you know, you know, in typical Spider-Man fashion, oh, I, I only had the, the Enigma Force for a short amount of time and I didn't do anything good with it. <laughs> it's like, well, you did save the world. So, you know, <laughs> kudos to you, Peter. I think that's a good one. I think another one and outside the realm of Amazing Spider-Man for a change is AVX. That's the Avengers vs. X-Men miniseries, uh, issue number eight. That's uh, Spider-Man versus like the the phoenix powered members of the x-men team uh including colossus this basically repeats all of the beats we talked about a lot here i mean you know frankly it maybe repeats them too much on the nose which is why i didn't throw this in the list but like it but this is a good example of a of a very modern story of 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 them doing this trope you know what what, what other ones do you think come to mind dan in terms of the, this whole template you know, JMS, as much as I like coming home, I do think that he kind of repeated that a few other times. I mean, there's like the other. There's a great story with this uh, villain named Shathra that's like this like wasp 
demon from another dimension that kind of invades Earth and turns into a woman and tries to suggest that like Peter Parker was like cheating with her. It's like a whole thing. And it like kind of puts a wedge in his marriage. But she's kind of the same as like this like unbeatable force. And I believe that like there was an allusion to Shathra like in the past. Did Nick Spencer allude to her in some instance where Spider-Man like killed her? Yeah, I think that came up during one of the Doctor Strange issues recently during like the Kindred stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like going to another kind of dimension. So Shathra is an interesting one. I thought Maximum Carnage kind of falls into this realm where it's like, I mean, what are you going to do to Carnage? You know, he's an unstoppable force and he's killing all these people. And while Spider-Man's not really the one that ends up beating him, it's kind of like Venom that really lays the punches down. It's like Spider-Man is the one with the moral choice, which is like, do I allow this person to die or or not? It's not totally nothing can stop the juggernaut, but there's definitely shades of it in that story. There's a great story uh, during the Paul Jenkins, Mark Buckingham run about fusion, which is a character that I have made fun of in the past. But that, you know, that's Paul Jenkins role is to dust off like Denny O'Neill villains and, <laughs> and make us care about him. So, you know, that one I, I think is definitely worth noting. And then I think more recently, and we've talked about these a lot on the show, Amazing Spider-Man 700 and Amazing Spider-Man 800 to Dan Slott Centennials. I mean, when you got a Centennial, you throw the, you know, you throw everything at Spider-Man, including the kitchen sink. 700, we've got him literally fighting against the clock and his own death, and he's going to throw it all into it, you know, to defeat it. I don't know if it's quite a nothing can stop the juggernaut, but, you know, I don't know. What do you think? Does ASM 700 have some of this in it? If anything, it's interesting because it kind of follows the template, but then completely skews it by having Spider-Man lose at the end (laughs) or having Peter lose, I should say. So that that's a, that's an interesting spin, and then of course Amazing Spider-Man 800. I think 800 is probably more truer to that form. I mean, in terms of how he tries to overcome the. I mean, you know, Red Goblin at this point, you know, he's infecting his friends and family, and he's he's got the 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 Spider Squad. Uh, you know, they're 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 all at risk, and you know, he knows Peter's identity. I mean, it's like, it's like basically like it, it's Juggernaut and Venom and Fire Lord and Moreland rolled into one here, you know, <laughs> like, it's just like, you know, like the, the, the threat level is, uh, is, uh, every, every, every point, you know, like there's no, there's no escape for Peter here. <laughs> and that's what I think makes that a really exciting issue. So, I mean, those are just a few of the ones that we could think of. I'm sure people are going to write in and tell us a ton of ones that we forgot or didn't mention here. Like I said, it you know it's it's a reoccurring trope that you know we've seen a lot of over the years. But I hope we we did it justice. I mean, one of my favorite kinds of Spider-Man stories. Thank you, Roger Stern, for for giving us such a good guide to kind of follow for for all, all these years of of great Spider-Man stories. Awesome. All right, Dan, why don't you take us home? Yeah. Well, um, of course, you know, if you find this show entertaining and valuable please consider supporting us. You can always just recommend Amazing Spider Talk to a friend. And trust me, we we would love it if you'd recommend our show. You know, we're still a small but devoted uh, show here and we could always use more people tuning in. But um, if you are able to and you really enjoy this, why not consider becoming a member on the Patreon? Yeah, we can only bring you this content with the support of our Patreon members, and we owe the show's success to every single one of them. 
we're constantly making exclusive content for our members. So like this week, Patreon members will hear Dan and my review of Amazing Spider-Man number 71 and Sinister War number one. Yeah, and why not take the $3.99 that you might spend on a new comic, although many of them are way more costly than that these days, put it towards a month's subscription to support the show and start receiving our Patreon content. That way you'll hear our Patreon-exclusive review podcast on every new issue of Amazing Spider-Man the same week that it comes out instead of waiting for it to arrive in our public podcast feed. Although now that the book has gone three times a month, Mark, Who's to really say how much we're going to be able to keep up with it, but we're going to do our best. We're going to try. We're going to try. And if you contribute $10 a month, you gain access to exclusive artwork from famous Spider-Man artists commissioned exclusively for our members. Uh, This season, we'll be mailing out a print by artist Ron Friends. He's created a lost page of the kid who collects Spider-Man for us, which was inked by Brett Breeding, uh, and it depicts Tim and Spidey sharing laughs over Tim's Spider-Man comic collection. Plus, every episode we release a new episode-specific desktop background created for us by artist Nick Cagnetti for our patrons to enjoy. And boy, are these all these art art pieces pretty pretty spectacular, Dan? Right? Yeah, I mean, if people are watching on YouTube, I've got the artwork right here. Some a forgotten page of Kid Who Collects just for everybody to, on on the patron to enjoy. So I think this is a really special one that you're going to want to get in on. Uh, one of my favorites we've ever had done. So that's going to be really great. But yeah, we know this is a hard time for everybody as it is for us too. So we appreciate anyone who supports the show just by listening and sharing. But if you do have the means, please join our Patreon to support the continued existence of our show. Just follow the link in the description. And thank you again to all the members who already make this show possible. But alas, it's that time, Dan, time for all good things to come to an end. So we want to say thank you to you, the listeners and viewers, for tuning in to this episode of The Amazing Spider Talk. Yeah, this episode was edited by Rick Coase with production support from Andy Myers. Our artwork comes handcrafted by artists Ron Friends, Sal Buscema, Ray Sumzer, and Nick Cagnetti. Our theme songs were produced by Rylan Bojack and Spider-Madge, plus our introduction animation and musical stinger comes from Josh Sutton from the YouTube show Panels to Pixels. Yeah, Dan, this was a lot of fun, but I bet our next episode's also going to be a lot of fun. What's that going to be? Yeah, well, Mark, I couldn't be more excited to talk about it, and that's because, you know, for the past few weeks, we've been discussing some of the new faces and stories introduced during the mid-'80s, And, you know, we thought we'd take a look into the pages of Spectacular Spider-Man to the introduction of a pair of anti-heroes into Spider-Man's life. That's right, anti-heroes, all the rage. Can't get (laughs) enough anti-heroes. So that's right, next episode, we're going to be discussing the first appearance of Cloak and Dagger, two villains turned heroes who became, I would say, like kind of semi-permanent fixtures in Spider-Man's life. Every time there's a new Spider-Man event, they've got a new mini or one shot for Cloak and Dagger. And they got their own TV show a few years ago. So they've become, you know, kind of a a bigger thing. Yeah. I mean, that was wasn't that allegedly going to be Nick Spencer's first big series in the Spider-Man universe was a Cloak and Dagger. And it just ended up being the miniseries, right? Yeah. It's so funny because that miniseries ends and like the last issue just has like a million ideas in it. And he's just, I feel like he just stuffed everything he could think into it to be like, please pick this up for a book. And 
They didn't. And I'm surprised they never showed up in his Amazing Spider-Man run, given like his you know love of them. But we're going to talk about Cloak and Dagger. It'll probably be the one time that we devote this much time to Cloak and Dagger. So <laughs> there you go. Um, so if you're a big fan of those characters, you know, come back in a couple weeks and uh, Mark and I are going to be talking about them. Sounds good, Dan. So, yeah, if you uh, are tuning in live, don't forget, as soon as the show ends, the conversation continues with our audience on YouTube. And if you missed out on Amazing Spider Talk Live this time, we'll be back soon on YouTube. So go there and subscribe and click on the bell, that little bell down below, to stay on top of all the new live recordings that we'll be doing in the future. But as always, this will remain a podcast first and foremost. That's always going to remain consistent, just like how we end the show, and that's with our motto. So, Mark, until you start bursting through the walls of Manhattan buildings, Kool-Aid man style, what's our motto? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Our motto, of course, (laughs) is with great podcasts, there must also come the amazing spider talk. Don't, Don't miss the next in the